Welcome to the Mike Gone Much Podcast. I am your host, Mike Veerman, and I'm here with my friend and trusty producer, Max Kerman. Max, what's going on? Uh, well, we are about to fly to Vancouver, actually. Not you and I. No, sorry, the band is. Yeah. We just announced we are playing a surprise show as part of uh, the Toronto Blue Jays home opener, which is in Toronto, but the Vancouver people need to party too. And uh, <laughs> the Arkells are going to be part of the entertainment after the game. So it's going to be at the Commodore Ballroom by the time this podcast comes out. Uh, you will have seen our new single, Knocking at the Door, uh, which we're very, very excited to, which I can talk about later, is also featured in a Blue Jays Budweiser ad. So wait a second. So with the, the Jays are playing in Toronto for their opener, but because they're Canada's team, yes. they're throwing like a party in Vancouver on the West Coast to sort of like... Launch the whole thing. Launch the whole thing. And so you guys are playing the West Coast yeah, to celebrate the Jays. Yeah, because we're playing in Portland, um, we're playing in San Francisco, and then Coachella. So by the time this pod comes out, all that stuff will have happened already. Right. Um, and, you know, the song was a demo we'd been working on for a while. I just, I'm always sort of hacking away at demos. And we had March off, and then we had this opportunity to record the song and uh, kind of launch it as a summer single. So March became kind of a crazy month for us. Even though it was supposed to be sort of a lot of downtime just hanging at home, we ended up being in the studio a bunch. It um, just sort of logistics for rolling out a new song. It just it kind of takes a lot of thought and energy. So, uh, But anyway, the song came out on Friday. Uh, on Spotify, we were on the Spotify billboard in downtown Toronto, Young Dunes Square, which was very exciting. <laughs> and then uh, this weekend, though, we kind of were like kind of in the clear, and we were able to party and celebrate the Nuts' <laughs> birthday. So I didn't, we didn't have anything really weighing on my All mind. All the work was done. All the work was finished, and uh, I can get to that in a minute. But how was your weekend? My weekend. So, like you said, uh, the Nut had a big birthday party, and as part of his birthday, he uh, so about. Two weeks ago, he sends out a, a message, and he's like, everybody, set aside April 8th. He's like, we're going to the ACC. We're playing basketball on the Raptors practice court. And already, I'm like, April 8th, no. <laughs> I was like, any other day. I'm like, move it to the weekend after, which is Easter, or move it up a weekend. And the reason I couldn't go to this birthday party is because at Christmas time, I was like, oh, what am I going to get Danica for Christmas? You yeah. know, and I'm like, I could get a gift or go get a piece of jewelry. But, you know, maybe it'd be better if I, like, built an experience. Yeah. So, as we've said in a couple pods ago, uh, Danica, my wife, she likes to do thrifting and sort of vintage shopping and find stuff. And then she ends up selling it online through her business. So, with this in mind, I was like, I'm going to find, like, a cool sort of, like, area that has lots of thrift stores and sort of maybe a, an antique shop of some sort. I find out Stratford has this Stratford, Ontario, home of uh, Canada's own Justin Bieber. That's right. Has a thing called, like, the, the old antique market or something. It's huge. So I'm like, at the very least, she can go through that thing, which is, like, massive, and she'll find some gems. I Do you have hope. any interest in those places at all? Or oh. are you just on your phone the whole time? <laughs> Because <laughs> if I was you, I'd be just on my phone the whole I time. I literally find the comfiest old damn chair, <laughs> sit down, and fire up Twitter. And she prefers it because I like I've tried to like walk around with her, and I'm like, ooh, that. And she's like, just just don't stop have it. Her. Yeah. Just go do what Actually, you want. Actually, I was uh, this is supposed to be a kind of a shopping day. Lauren just finished all of her stuff and uh, like her exams, and she had an interview today. But she's in the clear now, and uh, she wants no part of me following her around the mall. She's like, can you just leave? Like, you got it. And I fire up Twitter. Go go see you. Exactly. Anyway, carry on. Yeah. So. I'd planned this whole thing. Um, I was like, well, if we're going to go to Stratford, what's Stratford known for? I'm like, oh, plays, the theater, theater. The theater. So I'm like, I'm going to grab some tickets to a matinee. Ooh. I made reservations for like lunch. And then I booked this uh, bed and breakfast called like the, the Birmingham Manor. Yeah. And like I got the Balmoral Room because at the time we were watching The Crown on Netflix. So I was feeling very Britishy. <laughs> so, you know, I put this whole gift together. I basically call it like the antique road trip. 
whatever. Yeah. And then that's my gift to her at Christmas time. So I booked it for the weekend of April 8th. Uh-huh. We get out there. I have a bit of a mishap. Um, so I booked tickets to this show called like me and my girl or whatever. Cause at the time around Christmas, which is a very hectic time, we're all shopping, we were doing pod stuff, like your brain gets a bit scrambled. So I'm kind of like, okay, I got to get like tickets to a matinee. So whatever months pass, we get out there, we go thrifting in the morning. It's great. We do our lunch. She has a glass of wine with lunch. We're having a laugh. I'm like, okay, well the show's at two. We got to get there. So we go over to festival theater and we're walking up and she's like, there's like nobody around. Are we sure this is the right theater? And I'm like... Yeah, I think so. I think it's festival theater. It's fine. It's like, I think they're in previews right now. So then we go in and there's a couple at like the ticket window and I've got my like order on my phone because they didn't send me the tickets to print or whatever. So I'm like, well, when we get there, I'll just talk to them. But there's like 10 minutes until two. So I'm like, we got to get into the theater. So, but I'm getting nervous because this couple's taking forever. They're buying like tickets like, well, we'll take that show and we'll take that show. And I end up going up uh, and I just say, excuse me. I'm like, uh, this, is this festival theater? And the woman, who's clearly like annoyed because she's serving these other two people, she's like, yes. And I'm like, is there a show at, at two o'clock? She goes, no, the shows don't start for another week. And I'm like, what? I'm, I'm, but, I, but I have tickets on my phone. And then Danica's like, babe, come over here. We look at the phone and I'd actually bought tickets to the Shaw Festival in Niagara-on-the-Lake. Yeah, I knew he was going there. <laughs> like an idiot. I clearly conflated the two festivals. Yeah. How much were the tickets? I spent like a hundred bucks on these tickets. Oh, so I'm crushed. I'm like, <laughs> like, get in the car. We're not missing this damn show. <laughs> we can make it. I'm like, damn it. I'm so down. And she's like, the morning was great. Like she was so nice. She's like, don't let it ruin your day. Yeah. And I'm like, I just need 10 minutes to hate myself. How did I screw this yeah. up? And then, so I'm quiet. And then I basically just come to terms with the fact that I basically donated a hundred dollars to uh, the arts in Ontario. It to could theater. be worse. It could be worse. And then she spent the rest of the afternoon making fun of me the whole time. Oh, good. Like, Oh, but I have the, I have the tickets on my phone. <laughs> well, it makes a memorable story. Yeah. Me being a buffoon always does. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, you were so close to getting it right. Well, she did uh, post a very affectionate Insta story of you. It was like maybe Sunday morning. She put a heart around. I was like, oh, this weekend's going well. The only thing I really felt left out on was the basketball. Because I feel like we take our shirts off and drink like fools every weekend. Yeah, which is true. Um, Yeah, so hoops was good. It was great. Um, How'd you play? I played like shit. You didn't Uh, hit any of those uh, NBA three-pointers? No, I hit none. But actually, AJ played really well. It was was really fun. A lot of people played well. I, I think the only person who didn't play well was me. <laughs> um, but that was cool. So we all showered up and then we went over to the Thompson Hotel where uh, the nut got the penthouse suite. Of course. Of course he did. He'd have it no other way. And it was a big night because the Leafs were playing and they were vying for a playoff spot. And this is obviously big news in Toronto. And somebody had a raise coming if the Leafs make the playoffs. Oh, okay. Interesting. Uh, in the sum of thousands and thousands of dollars. Wow. So... Um, so, so someone in our friend group yeah. would stand to benefit monetarily if the Leafs make the playoffs because it's it'll be a bonus for their exactly. income. Yeah. So when the Leafs the Leafs were down, but when they pulled ahead, that certain someone went streaking around the apartment with his shirt off, just like guzzling <laughs> champagne, and it was the best. <laughs> so we were all very happy for that person. Uh, and then we went to uh, the Addison, which is one of these nightclubs in Toronto. Um, where it, it looks like some sort of like posh California like house. It looks kind of like a house, house party. You know, at some point, we're not just going to these clubs like to take the piss out of them. We're no. just clubbers. <laughs> like, was, like when do we say, cross that line we, to like, ironically about, going to clubs and getting bottle service to now it's just the door? But like uh, three months ago. Like four clubs ago. Yeah. Four, <laughs> when did this happen? I don't know how it happened or why, but I got to say, we're all loving it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, you know, up until about... I don't know, yeah, about a 
two months ago, no one would ever have considered themselves a Toronto club guy. Like, you know, whenever anybody mentions the word King Street West in Toronto, we'd all roll our eyes and go, we're above that scene. Yeah. But so what happened was that it was really fun. I, I got to say, I think the, if, if you had to give an MVP award in the Champagne Boys, it's got to be Julian, right? Of course. He's yeah. the star. He is a star, and he makes every night he's out the best. And uh, and also mostly because he makes a point of getting kicked out of every club he goes to. So he got <laughs> kicked out for dancing too aggressively. Like, not with a female or anything, but just, like, to the room. Anyway, they kicked him out. And when he gets kicked out, he's never mad about it. Like, the bouncers are always laughing as they're kicking him out. They're like, this is hilarious, but you got to go. Yeah. But then he so he kind of stayed outside arguing with the bouncers, but like, but with a big smile on his face and, and like, tried to dance his way back in, and they kept on stopping him at the door. Uh, and then he proceeded to climb a tree uh, as we were on our way back to the hotel. But then we found this convenience store because in Toronto clubbing tradition, we, we all insist on going to a convenience store and having Dan pay for all of our candy. Yeah. So everyone just like literally loads up and Dan ends up spending like $80 on just like gummy bears and stuff. That all gets left the next morning. That all gets left Nobody could eat that much candy. But the guy who was behind the counter of the convenience store had his iPhone out and was DJing, like literally like a real DJ, like probably was playing the best music we heard all night long because he had those little turntables on his thing and it was mixing and he was incredible. He was playing all of our favorite songs. It was like a lot of like late 90s, early 2000s hip hop, but like not playing the whole song. He'd play like 45 seconds and then and then like switch the, it up and then switch it up. So he needed we, to keep his audience interested. It was so you amazing. keep buying candy. I was sort of Snapchatting this whole thing. I saw it. I, I remember when Nelly's, uh, was it hot, hot in here? here? Oh, yeah. yeah. And then Al took his shirt off. It got lit. And it got crazy in there. And every people who were coming in also to buy candy or snacks or whatever were loving it. And so it kind of turned into a club. And the guy was so cool and laid back about it. Like, he did not want us to leave. He was just like... He really reminded me, you know when you see a DJ up there who like is owning the crowd, but is being so cool about it? Yeah. He's not like hooping and hollering. He's just like, yeah, this is my people, you know? Yeah. He was like that behind the like. You he had know, a quiet confidence. Yeah, it was amazing. Like, so, and then so and then he'd have to what go sell like a What would that club be called? Club Convenience? Club Convenience. It was, it was like an international newsstand. If anybody's. The uh, Corner Store? The Corner Store. And that's actually not a bad place for a bar if I ever opened one. It was on a university at like Richmond or Adelaide on the west side of the street. So I recommend that club so if, if you're, you're in toronto if you're in toronto that's the convenience store you gotta that's go to one. that's the club the corner store it was awesome so uh anyway shout out to the nut for the birthday happy birthday shout nut. out to julian for the being the mvp the real mvp and shout out to that guy who has the best music in toronto what's his dj name i don't know we didn't ask we should ask dj kit kat yeah Ooh, that's pretty good too <laughs> but al, yeah al had his shirt off like and when people were coming in like they just start dancing with us it yeah. was awesome it was a really good time all right, Max. Yes. Chris Murphy from Sloan. Sloan. This is an interesting one, Max, because much like the Julia Michaels interview uh, from two episodes ago, I haven't done this interview yet. I'm doing it tomorrow morning. I bet you it's going to go amazing, though. I'm excited. To be completely honest, like, I love Sloan. Uh, one Chord to Another is one of my all-time favorite albums. Like, I know every track on that album. I still play it all the time. Um, and it's going to be pretty cool to sit with Chris Murphy because... And he, he's known as a v- awesomely honest guy and very quick-witted and funny and the bands had a really interesting career, and I thought about that band's career a lot. They have so many hits, and but they've had a lot of sort of, I think, bumps along the way. They are totally beloved in Canada, uh, and I think they're at an interesting spot right now. And uh, and yeah, I was literally listening to Sloan this morning, and it, and there's but if there's one thing I know for sure is their songs are undeniable and the production of of the records is like exquisite and I am a lifelong fan. Sam, want to get to Christmas? Let's get to it. 
we on? We're, I, I just started rolling. Oh, okay, so right we're on. good. Yeah. Okay. And you're you're cool with mic technique. You know what's up. I think so. Yeah. I mean, you're you're not you're not on headphones, but you're looking at levels. I'm looking at levels. Right. I on. did some. You know what? I'm gonna throw headphones in. Let me be pro. You for need once in my life. You can. No, I'm gonna do it. I'm not. I'm not doubting your ability to pull this off. I, I don't think this is episode one, right? I'm doubting my own ability. <laughs> uh, no, this is episode. I think this will be episode sixty, maybe fifty nine. Wow. Yeah. I was kind of hoping I'd be like a special episode, like 100 or something. <laughs> 59. Yeah. It could be 60. We could stretch yeah. it out. It might be 60. Yeah. Maybe if you don't, if it is 59, you just quickly do some other shit guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or gal. And then the 60th episode, Chris Murphy. Yeah. Like it's like celebratory in some way. 60. I don't know. Anyway, I got nothing. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I, I want to kind of go back a bit and slurp coffee. It's, you know. Yeah. That's a joke. Was, <laughs> um, I kind of want to, like, I know a lot's been written about the band, but I want to sort of go back. Uh, I'm here to set the record straight once and for all. This is it. This is, yeah. the, this is the thing that's happening. Um, for our listeners, though, can you walk us through sort of what your life looked like growing up in Nova Scotia? Like, sure. Yeah. I'm uh, from Halifax, Nova Scotia, which I'll just start by saying my, our big break for Sloan was when Nirvana broke. And so they were from Seattle, which was not New York or L.A. They were from this, like, weird town. They were... Uh, they were into. They kind of saw the world, or saw music through the lens of punk rock, but could also write a song. It wasn't just like they, you know, they were. They had uh, melodic skills, um, and so we benefited from that timing. So bef- prior to that, we had been in bands. I was in a band with Jay Ferguson, who's in Sloan from 1987 to 1990. We were more, you know, I think it's fair to say that we had a Chili Peppers vibe, uh, like every. A more funky. Everybody's first band, yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, but he, Jay, in his revisionist history, would never use uh, Chili Peppers <laughs> to describe anything he's ever done. But uh, we were more interested, we were more influenced by a group called the Minutemen. Anyway, so I was really into hardcore. I was really into Washington, D.C. hardcore, so this minor threat. Um, and then later that sort of, you know, dag nasty. Did you start out that way though? But I mean, like it's like going back and being younger. Like, was it a musical family where you sort of like those early influences? That everyone has like the Beatles and sort of the yep. melodic stuff before you. Yep. So I I would have had the you know, you know we had a couple of Beatles records. We had you know I don't want to get in too heavy, but uh, my mother loved Joni Mitchell. So okay. so I, I I grew up loving Joni Mitchell. And I still do. And my dad liked Willie Nelson, and the Eagles and stuff like that. And um, so the first records I, I I got into Kiss was my first love in grade two. They were like when Destroyer came out when I was in grade two. And it was kind of for kids, that kind of music. Like it was kind of like menacing, but like really a cartoon, essentially. Yeah, of and, uh, and, I, and I stayed in love with Kiss. To this day, I love Kiss. I realize how awful they are as well. And they became the worst group of all time. But the first, I really stand by the first three records. I think that... Uh, people hate hated Kiss because of the uh, failure of the New York Dolls, mm. and that Kiss sort of took their act and sold it to Middle America, um, very successfully. But uh, but I love the first three Kiss albums. You know, people say that it's just terrible music, but it's not. It's it's just that their show was so big that I guess they weren't as good of players as Led Zeppelin or Yes. But I say, who cares? Like I think that they're. I do think that their records got worse and worse later. Of course. But the first couple of records, I think they were inter- they were influenced by power pop or the raspberries or like you know groups with songs as opposed to 
before Gene Simmons like took on a demon persona where he sings like this or whatever. Like in the first couple of records, he just has a cool singing voice. Like he he wasn't like a uh, you know cartoon character for kids. So, but when do you get into music? Is there instruments around the house? Are you? Do you my have- mother played guitar. My mother, you know, taught me. I didn't pick up anything. I took guitar lessons in grade three, but I didn't even make it to guitar. It was ta ta ti ti ta, and I was mm. just like, this is lame. And um, but my mother played guitar. My mother's a great singer. You know, I was raised Catholic, so like I went to church all the time, so I could hear my mother singing the soprano part, so I could pick out, I could sing my mother's part, but I could also sing the melody, so I could mm. uh, that helped me sort of differentiate, um, you know, different singing parts. But I was never, I never took music. I never, you know, I don't, I don't know how to read music. I don't know anything. I have both of my kids are in piano. And I see them sort of starting to read music, and you know, as part of me is like, I could probably learn that too, but I don't know what good it would do me at this point. Um, but my parents, there was music around the house. My mother, my mother comes from a family of eight kids, and you know, the six of them are women, and and they can all harmonize. They can three part harmony, and and it's, it was pretty exciting as a kid to see them sing. I loved it, and my mother was kind of the, the lead singer. And uh, she feels that she, I guess she has since sort of lost her voice, her her ability to go soprano, but she can still sing. But uh, it was a source of great joy in her life. And, and when when we got a break, uh, you know, there was no one more psyched than my mom. Yeah. I think she actually, she sang competitively as a teenager in PEI, where she's from. And I think, I don't, you know, I think that Anne Murray is basically her age. I, I feel like there's a story where, you know, Anne Murray won some big contest that, I don't know if my mother was in. I don't exact. I don't mean to write my mother into Anne Murray's story, but I, my mother was always critical of Anne Murray. She was always like, she has no range. Sure, she's like do re me. That's about it. So, would you show um, not only an interest sort of in music as you're growing up, but like a talent for it? Uh, are your parents like encouraging? Are they like, yeah, go for it? Are they? Like- no, they're actually discouraging in that you know. So I was into Kiss as an early. As a young boy, and then I got into Cheap Trick and um, whatever was on the rate, you know, The Knack and whatever, and then just like KTEL albums and stuff like that. And then Rush in junior high, as every kid in the suburbs does, at least when I was a kid. And uh, and I stand by Rush, and they to me, they are the top Canadian group of all time. And... Um, and we're on there too, but we're not, but <laughs> Rush is top. But, uh, and, uh, and then, and then, then punk rock changed my life, as they say, as uh, the Minutemen said. But anyway, so I became in, in the punk scene, arguably kind of the hardcore scene in Halifax, and I was playing music, and then, you know, my marks probably started to go down, you know, in grade 10 kind of thing. I was playing, I don't think it's because I was playing playing music, I was also getting interested in girls and whatever happens, you know, when you're... And uh, so I started blowing it in school, and my parents did have a talk to me because music was kind of my main thing, you know, probably since from then on. And, and they really, they didn't want to discourage me, but they were like, do your schoolwork. Like yeah. a priority that I don't fault, you know, do your schoolwork so, so you're not fucked yeah. later. And it was, it was, I had, I had difficult relations with my father in, during that time. And up until basically I graduated from university, which I did. And I think that Ever since I graduated from university, it was basically this bone to throw my dad to say, I value education or whatever. Right. Um, and I do, even though I don't even know if I would recommend my kids go to university, like learn a trade, like what, 
I don't know what people do anymore. Like the world has changed in a way that I barely understand. Yeah. Um, what's this podcast thing we're doing? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we got a big break. The Nirvana breaks. This is what I want to get to. Yeah. So you start the band. Um, it was you and Jay first sort of messing around in bands. Jay and I were in a band first. Like I have a long string of bands I was in. But when we got a break, you know, not that not, not that my parents or Johnny Come Lately's are like bandwagoners or something, but like they're pretty they're pretty psyched for me. Yeah. That um, because I'm from a small town, and then we got we got signed not only to a you know, we got recognized not only by Toronto, but by, by internationally. We got signed to the label that signed Nirvana. Well, this is what I'm kind of getting to. So you guys have uh, the band. You do the EP, right? Uh, That's right. Yep. Peppermint. Peppermint EP. You guys do that. Yep. How does Geffen get involved? So they're, they're now searching because they'd found Nirvana in Aberdeen or whatever. And then so now they're looking in weird, like sort of more rural spots. Yeah. So um, in September 1991... Myself, Jay Ferguson, Patrick Pantlin, and Andrew Scott. We are Sloan. We've played like 11 times maybe. So we are pretty new. We recorded a song, uh, Underwhelmed, which was our, our first big break of a song. We did like we, we've done, we did two recordings of it. So the first recording we did, in, we just happened to do right as Nirvana, right as Smells Like Teen Spirit was taking off, like that month. So, and so it starts to happen. And then in December of 91, we recorded nine more songs or something. And then we made you no know, demo tapes and stuff. And we, we gave it to a guy who came to Halifax. His name was Cam Carpenter, Cameron Carpenter. He came to Halifax in February 1992. We gave him our stuff. So he worked for MCA, which is universal. It was called MCA Canada or whatever. Yeah. So he was an A&R guy. And he... I think he brought it to his company who said, what would we, what would we do with this? These were the songs that, be, that were on um, our first little EP called Peppermint and our first record called Smeared was essentially the same recording time. And um, so some of them are on the EP, some of them are on the record, two of them or three of them are on both. So Cam Carpenter sent our, he, I don't think he, I think he, came up against a brick wall at MCA Canada, but he sent it on to a guy, Todd Sullivan, who worked at, at Geffen. Todd Sullivan uh, was just like an underling guy. He had never really signed anything before. But so, I mean, like, so then you get a call? Yeah, so between February and April, 92, we got a call from Geffen saying, don't sign anything with anyone, because we were also talking to other people, Network in Canada, Network had like Sarah McLaughlin and whatever. There, That's a lot of success out of the gate to even have like that kind of you oh, know, heat happening for you guys. Yeah, like we had played no shows. We yeah. played a handful of shows to no one. Did you feel like, yeah, I thought it would go down this way, or were you like, of course Holy not, of course not. No, my everyone's expectations changed immediately, and it was crazy. And it was crazy in Halifax too, because so, so we... You know, apparently Geffen called, don't sign anything until we see you. It's like, holy shit, slash, they probably talk to everybody. Like, they, they're not, they can't mean this. Right. So anyway, so we, but but they weren't coming out here. We had to, we had to book a tour to Vancouver as unknowns to be seen. So this guy was going to fly up to Vancouver. So we booked an ill-fated tour. We played in front of this guy, but we didn't know he was there because we played in Vancouver the night of the L.A. riots. Mm. so like I'm like he didn't he didn't get out of LA so we just played we just we were terrible we played in front of nobody we, but then he was there and uh, and we met him and he was like I love you guys and he 
and he thought we were really funny too. Like, you know, um, we get lots of Beatles comparisons, and I would say that one of them is, you know, our music is good or valuable. But I think like when, when, when we met Todd Sullivan, he was like, "You guys are also hysterical," and and I would like to say also the the line walking the line between comedy and cool or character and cool is a difficult line, a hard line to walk, illustrated best by Beastie Boys, who were hysterical and cool as shit. Yeah. Well, it's hard to be funny and be cool because sometimes trying to be funny can be seen as trying, and trying isn't cool. Exactly. So it almost has to be effortless. Well, well, comedy and music is just like, what's, like, just the sound of it is like, I don't want to hear that. Exactly. It's disgusting, but... You guys displayed this natural charisma that he. I, I I'd like to think so, but like that's a pathetic thing to say. But anyway, <laughs> but he, so he said it, so I'm quoting someone. <laughs> but anyway, so we got like so we got lucky, you know. We didn't feel like, you know. So we were immediately Canada's Nirvana and all this stuff, or Canada's Nirvana, as we were saying, sure. because we were from, uh, <laughs> but fuck, whatever. But um, um, so we kind of thought that. They already have Nirvana. Like we're 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 different. We have a different enough thing. We're actually like we like Nirvana. We love Nirvana and we love Black Flag and Black Sabbath or the, the groups that they love too. But we also feel like we had we felt like we had to kind of like a, a British thing too. We were into My Bloody Valentine and that sort of shoegazer stuff. And we were that's kind of what we were really into at the time. It changed things in Halifax too a little bit so that so we got signed to Geffen. And so I, what I was partly saying about not only we were, not only were we not from L.A., we we're from Canada, and not only were we not from, we were from the middle of nowhere. So that's kind of our joke when our second record is called Twice Removed. So we're like twice removed kind of from the world. Sure. Like not only are we not from there, we're not from there. Like we're from nowhere. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but, uh, so we got lucky, but, the, but a lot of, you know, it positively affected, you could say that like it soured the fun of the, local music scene because like people were more now people were interested in getting record deals and stuff because no one had had any aspirations prior to that this is we're just playing we're and we got a new show how much are we getting paid what are you talking about yeah no money now it's all business because you guys got signed yeah and it's like how come they got signed what about us it's like how how did anybody get signed none of you should be signed we shouldn't be signed it's like the world is upside down and it's and and we got about 10 minutes for like it's gonna go back yeah like so, um, so you get the deal. Uh, you guys make twice removed for Geffen. We got a deal. We made. We we made. Uh, Geffen re- released our first record. They remixed our first record that cost us twelve hundred bucks to make. They remixed it to the tune of thirty thousand dollars or whatever. Yeah, and it did. It did okay. But we really felt that the House of Cards, that was the sort of alternative music scene, was about to come down. We kept like watching like this is going to end any minute now so we really wanted to get out of there musically too so we on our second record twice removed we really we abandoned all of our influences on our first record and made this pop record of you know uh, our reference points were Fleetwood Mac and uh, John Lennon Plastic Ono Band and these other things other than you know grunge and and uh and Geffen had a hard time with it. The people at Geffen, and they were saying, you know, you're making it difficult for us to market you guys because you came in as this. We've been trying to sell you as this, and now you're this. Like, like I think you should redo this. And we were like, no way, man. Stick it to the man. Right. And they're like, we will release this because we're contractually obligated. 
but rest assured we are not going to pr- promote this. And we're like, fuck you, we'll do it ourselves. And then they really didn't promote it. And then we just, we fought with each other the whole time. And then we're just like, okay, we're done. Like internally, the band. We were fighting internally. We were living in Halifax. Andrew Scott, uh, at that point, it, like early on, moved to Toronto to be with his girlfriend at the time, now his wife. I don't begrudge him, but at the time I was pissed. I was like, I got a chance to make something of myself and you're fucking taking off on me. But whatever, I was young and I guess immature in that I didn't value love as much as this opportunity to make make something of myself. Well, how does that come to a conclusion? Because eventually you go on to start your own record label and put out one chord to another. But So how does that Geffen chapter close? We did break with Geffen, which is a bit of a complicated story, but I'll just say quickly... We wanted to break up. Andrew had moved, I th- and I and I sort of interpreted that as I'm not as interested in the band anymore. It was kind of true, but um, but he never was going to quit. So we even thought about like, should we just get a new drummer? There are lots of good drummers around town. But I am so childishly into uh, the the dynamic, the family dynamics of a band that I was. I could never replace him or anyone. I just think it would just ruin what we had. And like, I'm a fan of whoever, Kiss, say, who keeps replacing these guys as if it doesn't matter, but it does matter to me. So anyway, so I'm, I refuse to let, so I was ready to say, I I would rather break up than do that. In fact, let's break up. I kind of was breaking it up. At the end of 94, December 94, I was like, I want to, I want to start over. I'm still young enough. I'm 26 or whatever. Uh, I'll just start a new band. So we did break. We broke up the band. This is after twice removed. This is after twice removed, which which sold nine thousand copies or something. Geffen like, didn't promote it. Geffen didn't promote it. It was a commercial failure. But during that time, and I don't know if it's because we broke up, but like twice removed ended up getting this sort of um, second wind or this sort of like it became the soundtrack of the whatever, like the people who were getting tired of the grunge scene or whatever. And also, there's part of me that cynically, th- I, I like the music on the record. I don't disbelieve that the music is attractive to people, but I think that there are a lot of people who think of that record as a fuck you record to Geffen. It's like, they were going to make us re-record, and we said no. Right. And that's not exactly true. I was desperate to do something with my life. I was like, I'll fucking suck your dick. Like, sure. Get me out of this town. So this wasn't like a like a Gen X like no like stick it to the man. You wanted it, to be but successful. It was like it was almost like our the band itself was like let's stick it to the man. But I personally was like like I probably would have rolled over if it were up to me. And I'm glad that we didn't. Of course, in the end, because I think that anything that makes us last longer to me is is the move that I want to make. Like if there's upfront money, it's like well how does that affect do we do we exist ten years from that, or or does that break us up? Like I I want to do the thing that makes us last the longest. Sure. Know? So our relationship with Geffen, they would have they would have kept going with us. I think you know maybe not promoted this very well, but but Todd Sullivan after so as Twice Removed is failing commercially, Todd Sullivan at Geffen who signed us, who's our A and R guy, he the first Weezer record came out, which was a giant seller. And and uh, that was a mistake too. Geffen didn't plan for that to happen. Like they were not going to be a priority, but th- like that just happened organically. Like a radio station in Seattle said, "What is the single on this record? This record is amazing." And Geffen was like, uh, "I don't know what is it." And they were like, um, "Sweater song, or whatever." Sure. And they were like, "Okay, let's make a video." 
And then it just happened naturally for them. And so this this male boy who signed us, like he became the biggest A and R guy at Geffen. And but we were kind of going down right then. And we broke up the band, and he was saying, "Don't break up. It's 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 silly." The other thing that happens with bands is sometimes when you're signed to a record contract and you break up, then you're then you remain in this limbo where. If I wanted to put out a record, they could they could attach the record contract to me. So Geffen was looking for us to send them in writing that we were breaking up, and we said we're not we're going to break up, but I'm not going to write and tell you that because it puts us in a at a disadvantage contractually. Right. So so there was a kind of are they broken up or not? The truth was we were, but we couldn't say officially because. Um, there's this whole like contractual you'd have. You're a, trying to protect yourselves legally. Yeah, down you're the road. protect yourselves legally and. Um, and in the meantime, Twice Removed became, you know, was listed in this in this magazine called Chart Magazine as like best Canadian record of all time. Like as we were kind of thinking, we were we were, and then we were sort of thinking, let's make a posthumous Sloan record to help murder records. And so that was one chord to another. Like this was this was going to be like was one chord going to be like your swan song? Yeah. Well, it was. Yeah. We like we're over, but like we we don't hate each other. Like let's just do it. Like we're not going to tour or anything, but like let's just do it to help murder records along. We'll put it thing. out on our label. Yeah. And it, we all own murder records equally. And so like during the sort of the 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 end of the Geffen uh, relationship. W- Within the band, you guys are breaking up because Andrew's moved uh, to Toronto. Yep. Uh, are the uh, like are you guys getting along though? Yeah. Well, Jay and I, Jay and I ran Murder Records ourselves. Andrew and Patrick were essentially uninvolved, but Jay and I uh, are you know we were in this band before Sloan. We ran Murder Records like he's kind of like my life partner. Gotcha. So we were running the label. Patrick was just a guy in town. Like we hung out with him a little bit, and uh, Andrew was gone. But then it was like, let's do this thing. So we did demos, the three of us, Patrick and Jay and I, and we sent them to Andrew to learn. And I played all the drums. And in that, during that time, the, the band that really changed our sound to me was Supergrass. I saw Supergrass in Boston, and I came back to Halifax. I was like, Supergrass, the best band in the world. I just saw them. It was amazing. And, and all of the drumming that I was doing on these demos was essentially like Supergrass to me, which was like the Who. We sent the demos to Andrew, who didn't... He played like Dave Grohl, like his drumming style. Okay. Then he came down for Christmas, and in one day, we recorded all the drums just on a four-track cassette player to one chord to another. It was like, it's all we could get him to do. <laughs> but he kind of impersonated me, impersonating Danny from Supergrass, impersonating Keith Moon. But he's way better than me. Andrew was fantastic. And uh, and we just, you know, one take, maybe two takes, but like probably one take of each song on four-track cassette recorder. And it's like, see you later. And then we made... Then we brought those four tracks into a 16-track studio, put them on the 16-track, and just did overdubs on weekends whenever we could afford it because it was back to our money. Jay and I paid for it. Wow. And, uh, and, then, and then Andrew said, I'll send you down two songs. And he recorded two songs in, in, uh, in Toronto. And you know, I kind of thought that he was just musically, just like his whole, like I think, feel that he felt like an outsider and all that stuff. And I kind of felt musically what he was going to send us was essentially a f- new songs or Interesting. like music that didn't make any sense but he's he sent he knew what we were working on but he he sent songs that were that were great that really were a part of what we were doing like really meshed well and so that record was one chord to another and you know we made it super cheap but that was our commercial zenith and by zenith i mean so even though we get listed off yeah 90s bands you know rlap's tragically hip sloan like 
those bands were legitimately big. Like our band, so our commercial Zenus was like 80, we sold 80,000 copies, which I'd love to do now. Of course, sure. nobody does or few people. And I'm proud of having done that. And, and I think that that's a real accomplishment. But, but as I say, we were never a tenth as big as the, the groups that some people think are our contemporaries. Um, right. Anyway, sorry, I don't know why I say that. But anyway, so Geffen did let us go when we broke up because they were cool about it because they could have screwed us. They let us, so, so we took one court to another. We went back to Geffen and said, we weren't trying to pull a fast one on you by breaking up. We've made this record. We're bringing it to you. I didn't want to do it with Geffen, but I said, this is the, legally the best thing to do is to, to give them first right of refusal. They were going to release it. And they, I have a copy of, of artwork with Geffen logo on one court to another. But and so we did that. We were kind of getting in bed with them, and as that was happening, I was like, "I cannot, I will not do this." Like uh, we were talking to people there, and I was like, "This is gross. I don't want to do it." And we just happened. We played it in New York City. Who said I work at a label called the Enclave? Tom Zutat, the guy who who was the the mentor of Tom of Todd Sullivan, the guy who signed uh, Guns and Roses. Yeah, yeah, Gene Arn. He now has his own label, and. He'd like, he likes you guys, and he also, like, his other motive was he wants to take a band that Geffen couldn't break and break them. Right. Like, that's, his, that's part of his motivation. I was like, great. Like, I'll take a revenge. I'll be part of a revenge story. <laughs> uh, but uh, so we signed to this label called The Enclave for one quarter or another. It was kind of like our second chance. That was a U.S. label, and it meant that we signed this publishing deal in Canada, and so we had all this money again. Um, but the Enclave went under in no time. And then we got into trouble with our publishing company too because the pub publisher is supposed to pay you every time you put out a record. But then, So they paid us for one quarter to another and then when we went to put out Navy Blues, our fourth record, yeah. we didn't have a major in the States. We just were putting it out through Murder Records through distributors and the publisher was like, well, we're not, we own this one for free. We, we're not going to pay you again. It's like, well... It's like we're actually shipping more copies than we did of one chord to another. Like, give us part of it. I understand you don't want to give us the full thing. Just give us maybe part of it or half of it. And they're like, nothing. Mm. And so we're like, we're going to sue you. And then they were like, well, you can buy it back off us. You give us back all of the money that we gave you. And so we did that. But And that took us years to pay off. Wow. And we did it because we were arrogant and we wanted to say fuck you uh but it it kind of destroyed our finances and all that stuff but it meant that we clawed back and owned all that stuff so we own a, a song of ours called money city maniacs which probably has generated the most money for us so like i'm glad that we did it because it was on like big shiny tunes or whatever which sold six hundred thousand you know copies and stuff there was a commercial here in canada that had a, a version that sounded like money and then the, then there was uh that this, wasn't money was, city maniacs there so. was this future shop that's what commercial. it was. That's right. And it was, so we did get paid as the, but it, it was a re-record. Got you. So it was like, uh, what is it like? It's like. Um, That's right. So you get half of the money. Right. Uh, because uh, they would have to pay the owner of the recording and they would have to pay the writer. So we got paid as the writers. And so, the, the, but we didn't own that recording. They didn't pay for the recording. Yeah. But that did go through you guys. Because yeah, I was always like, is this one of those weird things? Where no, they and we, got, we got paid and oh, it was nice. a weird thing where, that was a weird thing where. That, that went on for a couple of years yeah and we and they paid us every year so it was like so we were calling each other it's like if anybody sees that ad after may or whatever they have to pay us again or whatever so it's watch tv <laughs> <laughs> 
So, so that happened for a couple of years. And then, then when that went away, we really, really realized that that amount of money, that windfall was, had been a big part of our money for like four years in a row or something. And then when that was gone, it was like, Oh God, we have no money again. (laughs) But, uh, so we are just like a small business and, uh, you know, I'm not complaining. You know, I'm still here. Like we're 25 years in. I just played, I just went and jammed with Patrick on Wednesday. What have you got? Kind of thing. Like, you know, we have to ask ourselves this far in what we have 11 albums plus, you know, 11 albums and EPs and live record, greatest hits record. What is the value of new music? And I don't, I don't know if, if when you do a mathematical thing about time and money and energy, I don't know if it makes sense. I think we're still, I think that we will still do it just because we're arrogant. <laughs> or just just to say just to add to our enormous body of work which is 200 songs plus well when you talk about i mean you know you've mentioned a couple like your contemporary bands and sort of their success and you've talked about uh the, the way things went and the way that things could have gone differently when you think back is there anything you would have done differently well as i say i, like, I don't wish we worked harder younger the career that i wanted was you know, we would look at a band like the tragically hip and say i do not want what they have which is their they're like the goose that laid the golden egg at home, but they're like they're like without value anywhere else. They just play to expats and Canadians in Europe and Canadians in the States. That's closer probably to what we have than what I wanted. I, what I, I wanted to be like a cult act all over the world. I want to be able to play in Europe. Like I'll play at, I'd be happy to play Lee's Palace in Toronto if I can play Lee's Palace in in Paris or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I, I'm sure you've answered this question before and had to ask it. Bring but it on. Yeah. Uh, the Other Man. Yep. Do you care to... Yeah. <laughs> our listeners just made a hilarious face. So, I mean, this is on like Wiki and other things. Like, what is the story there if you want to get into it? And What's the story as far as you know? From what I've read, it was a, it's an autobiographical song. Okay. Anything else you know? Uh, that it may have uh, been based on a love triangle between you and two other popular Canadian musicians. Really? Does this say this on Wikipedia? It does. Does it, does it name names? It does. Really? Who are they? Who are they talking about? Uh, Feist <laughs> and um, uh, the guy from Broken Social Scene. I'm blanking oh, on his yeah. name. I would. I'll blank on his name too. <laughs> um, no, I know those guys. Vice is the best. She's like the the ultimate. She's the best singer, I would say, in the world. Certainly that I've ever met. But um, and we're all buds now. But yeah, so that's yeah, true. I feel like a goof talking about her that way. But sh- we love each other, so we're still buds. And she won't. She doesn't care what I do. Like she's too busy being legitimately successful. And I'm just <laughs> dicking around. But at one point, yeah, so I dated uh, Leslie Feist before she was a big shot. She had a record, but um, she was just playing at the Cameron House, like a little, you know, place downtown. And, um, but I, but my, so yeah, so the other man is about like, she was, she was dating a guy when I kind of fell in love with her. And, and I sort of spent some time like waiting for them to break up, basically. I'm like, okay, I basically, I saw her on TV on the wedge or something. Right. I had already seen her. I had seen her in broken in uh, a broken social scene in uh, by divine right. right. Yeah, with Jose. She's like a little rocker. Yeah. She's, to me, she just looked like uh, like Malcolm Young from ACDC. She's she's tiny. She had like a great big guitar and just hair in her face. And I was like, S- she's super cool. And then I saw her with P 
Peaches and Gonzalez and those guys essentially in a rapping strip show, like screaming her head off. And I thought, that's hysterical. And then I saw her on TV on the wedge or whatever, singing, singing, like with the voice that everybody knows that she has now, um, a song called It's Cool to Love Your Family. And I was like, yes, it is. <laughs> that's the same girl. And then I basically like a f goofball, like when I was like, where, where, who is that? I'm going to go find her. And I lived down the street from her in the end, but she was younger than me. She ran with like a hipper crowd and stuff. But, but, and I basically went down and said, you know, I'm into you. What are we going to do here? <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, who is this gross goofball? <laughs> and, uh, Whatever. And eventually yeah, I got to date her. But like, so I knew she was dating somebody. I didn't really know who he was. And uh, so I just basically camped out. And I was just like, I'll see you at the end of that. So I probably may, probably did some damage there, poisoned that relationship a little bit. But I didn't, I, I wouldn't say that I stole her away from somebody. Like I didn't like try to make out with her while she had a boyfriend and stuff. Sure. You were interested, but didn't cross lines. I was interested, but I, but I, I, I made it known that I was willing to do damage I was like, I'm, I'm, you know, let that go to hell because I'm, I'm hanging around. <laughs> you and uh, the dude from Broken Social Machine, cool. I, th I think so. I never really, really hung out with him that much, but I apparently he covered the other man. Oh, there you have it. Yeah, and uh, and he's been he, I've, he's been asked about it too. I've heard, and, and he's like, yeah, good too, good pop too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he's a talent. Like he's he's a legitimate. I don't want to talk about him too much because I yeah. don't know. People might not know. Uh, that connection, but they might know about Leslie, and I'm more friends with her. Like I feel like, yeah, if 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 she has a problem with it, she'll tell me. Whereas he'll like I'll never see him again. Sure. <laughs> All right. Lastly, I guess I mean you know you, you talked a lot today about uh, you know things that maybe you could have done different and where you would hope that things would be at now, but I mean from where I stand, I mean. I think when you talk about, like, oh, people always put us in the echelon of these other sort of massive Canadian bands. I think the reason they do that is because the music is so good and so beloved. And Don't get me wrong. Culturally, we've had a bigger impact than either of those bands. <laughs> That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> so how do you feel looking back on, like, sort of the positive things, the things you guys did right? Because, like, for me, One Chord to Another is, like, one of my favorite albums yeah, of no, all time, you know? Thank you for saying and that. And I think, I think a, a lot of people... I mean, you know this, and maybe that you're like, it goes without saying, but it's like, I guess I just wonder where your head's at when it comes to looking back on your legacy and how great the music is and how people view it. I'm proud of my life's work. You know, I'm at once self-deprecating and arrogant. Like, do I think that there are bands with a better legacy in Canada? It's like very few. Like, I think that we have a pretty, you know, I think that we were, somewhat influential you know when we were younger and cooler like like i know some people who i know a lot of people who said you know i started a band because of you guys and blah 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 although it wasn't just us obviously they were probably into nirvana and just like that whole time but uh so i don't take credit for any of that stuff but but when i i look at our our uh our discography as being pretty immaculate there are songs i don't like um but that's that's part of the because I don't get to approve every song and no one is the boss, you know, I could conceivably dislike three quarters of the material if I only write a quarter of it. But um, from where I'm sitting, I like pretty much all of it. That's not necessarily true for the other guys. Like there are some guys who might be like, I don't like that guy's music. 
Whereas I, I appreciate it all. I like Kiss. I like the Smiths. I like Joni Mitchell. Like I can, I, I feel like I have a spectrum of stuff that I like. Uh, there's a lot of stuff I don't like, but most of the music in Sloan is is a uh, music that I like. So I think, um, you know, at one point we were like part of the zeitgeist and stuff in the '90s, and and people think of us as a '90s group. I think that we've written a lot of great songs in the years since, but I also understand the the power of nostalgia and the power of it, you know I could write a song like I could write Bridge Over Troubled Water today, but people would be like I love Underwhelmed. I'm like that took me ten minutes, and it's like but it's but I was in university. It's like well, <laughs> well I can't I, you know can you don't be just because I wrote that song when you didn't hate your life doesn't mean it's a better song. But uh, but I'm like that too. I like the first couple Kiss records. They probably think, you know, I like the first eight or ten Rush records. I don't go past. Yeah. It's not because necessarily the music was bad. It's just people change. People's priorities change. You know, when you're young and you define yourself by the music you listen to, you know, you you know, and you and there are bands that hit you in in that time just just by the luck of the draw. Like I was into that because I was that's the time when I was listening, when my ears were open and it, it happened for me too. Like I kind of like in 87, I kind of feel like I kind of stopped kind of liking everything. I just got really specific and, and, uh, I stopped watching much music or whatever. That was a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for your time, man. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me and ramble on. I don't know if you edit it, but if you don't, if you've gotten this far, uh, thanks for listening. I got a couple actually bonus questions. Okay. One, uh, that uh, like sort of small sized like uh, Mustang bass that you play. Yes. Do you feel like you popularized it? This is a question for my brother because he played one, a white one, for a long time. Yeah, but he plays it because I played it. He definitely did. I'm just kidding. You know what? Uh, <laughs> I played a Mustang bass because I just found the other basses too big. They're just, big, right? Just like it's too big. Like I want to, I want to run around. I it just breaks your back. It's like it's. Uh, it's they're a drag, and the, I, the Mustang that I have belonged to my roommate, who I was like, I want to buy that bass, but then he's for whatever reason I forget the order of things, but he sold it to a music store for two hundred bucks, and I was like, where's that bass? He's like, I sold it to Folklore. I'm like, ah, so I went into Folklore to buy it instead of buying it off my roommate. I had to go into the store and buy it off them. They sold it to me for four hundred bucks, <laughs> but I I think I got my money's worth at I'll this say. point. And but there's another. Cultural reference to that base. Do you know what Scott Pilgrim is? Do you know that? I was going to go into this as well. Go yeah. on. Well, the Scott Pilgrim in one of the bands there. Uh, you did work on that film, right? You were I like did. consulting, sort of teaching the actors how to look like they could authentically play the instruments. That's right. So, and then some people, and that was for a while, that position was called musical director. So I was getting all kinds of calls from people who were like, get my music in that movie. Oh, right, and I was right. like, get my music in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> but they changed my t t title. Uh, but yeah, so I worked on that that uh, movie. But Brian Lee O'Malley, who who drew the comic, he was a big fan of a lot of that kind of music that came out of Halifax, including this group called Plum Tree, which had uh, a song called Scott Pilgrim. And, um, ah, did I, you, I, I heard that you somehow that gig came about because you have a relationship with Jason Schwartzman or he's a fan. I do have a relationship with Jason Schwartzman. Um, I met him when he was about 17. I met him prior to Rushmore, but he, so we toured in 1997 with a group called Red Cross. Okay. And 
one of the guys in Red Cross was dating a woman who was in business with Sofia Coppola. Okay. And so Jason Schwartzman is a Coppola. Coppola? Coppola? Eh, whatever. It's the Halifax thing. Nirvana, Nirvana. That's right. Potato, 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 tomato, tomato. Um, and so Jason Schwartzman was hanging around with the Red Cross guys in that. And he already had his band, Phantom Planet. Yeah. That was ha- And they signed it to Geffen. But he was so young and goofy. <laughs> and I was still young and goofy. Like that I was like, it was like, yeah, this kid's on, this kid's signed to Geffen. I'm like, what, you little piece of shit? <laughs> and I was like wrestling with him like a, like a little boy. Like I'd like throw him on the ground and like punching him. Like, how dare you kind of thing. Yeah. You know, basically kind of take the compliment out of my being like, he's like, what, does Geffen assign anybody now? Little kids? <laughs> and uh, and so I got to know him there. But And then I didn't know who he was. Like, I, I guess I knew his name, but he was just like the friend of those... And then later I saw Rushmore in a theater when we were on tour in Washington. And I watched probably half the movie. And I like stood up in the movie and was like, I, that, I fucking know that kid. That's a kid from the, that I was wrestling with. And so I love Rushmore. And a bunch of those, uh, you know, he's great. He's so funny. But yeah, he was in um, uh, Scott, the Scott Pilgrim versus the world or whatever it's called. And, uh, but my involvement, I think, was irrespective of his. Maybe he mentioned to Edgar Wright, the, the director, that he knew me. But I feel like there was a different connection to, to meet me. So Edgar Wright, the director, he would have at least heard of Sloan. I don't know if, how much he knew about Sloan. But he had me into a meeting where he said, um, does it bother you when you see bands in a movie and, and they can't play? I was like, ugh, the worst. Like, yeah. turn that off. And he's like, perfect, I need you. Um, and then... I don't know how long this bonus question is. I can no, just keep rolling. I can add on. And then, so I did some work with, with the bands. Uh, Michael Sarah didn't need any work because he was... He plays. He was he plays. Some of the people were determined to do a good job. Alison Pill, like, worked, she did not play drums, but she worked her ass off, and she looks pretty good doing it. Some of them did not care and, you know, and look, I would say, pretty bad. So, but the, but the, but the, the people who were editing were musical enough to cut away before it looked too sure. shitty. So I was doing some work with the, the group that was called Sex Babom, that was Michael Sarah's group. And, uh, and I was working them in a rehearsal spot down in Cherry, Cherry Street or whatever it's called. Edgar Wright came in, the director, and videoed some of their rehearsals. Everybody was very happy. I got an email from Edgar's assistant saying Edgar had a moment. He's so happy. But then Nigel Godrich, this guy, this famous producer who produced Radiohead and Paul McCartney and all these things, he also was involved in the project. And it was like, uh, Nigel Godrich wants to meet you. And I was like, oh, cool. I went down and met him. And he said, yeah, I saw saw footage of the band rehearsing. It looks like shit. I was like, well, f- you know, where was I at casting? Like, you, these people do not know how to play. <laughs> Who hired them? And he's like, well, Edgar just wanted them to look. He's a slave to the to the material. He just wants them to look like the cartoon. I was like, that is a huge mistake. Like, this is going to look terrible. <laughs> and I said, there's one kid I'm working with who's in one of the other bands. He doesn't have any lines, and he can't play bass. i got to spend a lot of time with him. He's like, fire that kid. I'm like, I'm not firing anybody. Who am I? And he, so he got that kid fired. So I feel bad. <laughs> I kind of got that kid fired. And he's just like a local kid. Oh, man. And he was really nice. But I was like, 
He couldn't play, but he didn't have any lines. He didn't have any lines. Like, get anybody else. Yeah. Get somebody who kind of looks like him. Yeah. All like, of a sudden, I Chris work... Murphy's in there in the shot. With the... My hands are in there. Like, <laughs> my hands are the guitar player in the main band. Uh, like, that guy was not determined to do a good job. Right. And so I had to work a lot with him. Like, I, I couldn't spend all that time with these bit part guys because I, I got to spend time with the, He's the lead singer of the lead band. He, did, he never picked up a guitar. Yeah. So I had to work with him a lot. And yes, my hands, my knobby hands are in, uh, are in the final. That was an awesome bonus to answer. Right on. All right, man. Thanks again. Thank you. Welcome to everybody's favorite part of the show, The Desserts, where our friend and pop culture aficionado Shane Cunningham comes on. Shane, what's going on? Hey, I, I heard you want to talk about something salacious. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that's my specialty. Jean Gameshi has a, a podcast out now. Oh, okay. And you know, this is actually coming out a week later. So hopefully between now and next Monday. The uh, podcast hasn't been canceled? It hasn't been canceled or he hasn't done something stupid. Or, right, right. I don't know, the world hasn't fallen apart or something. Well, he was your buddy, wasn't he? Or do you want to hide that fact? <laughs> <laughs> You know, he was uh, a real advocate for Canadian music and culture, and he launched a lot of uh, artists' careers on his show. Like, and not not totally launch it, but like really helped support it. And we shared booking agent. And yeah, no, he was uh, definitely a champion of the band. Well, I remember um, he. I was speaking of books. He did a book, and he had a, like a book release party. Yeah. We and played he, it, and you played, and the song you played together that you did a duet with Psycho Killer. <laughs> And then it, like a little bit later, this news came out. And I was like, Max, can I post the video of you and Gian singing Psycho Killer together? And you're like, do not. Absolutely do not. And you're like, you got really, like, you never get mad at me, but you got really stern yeah. about that part. You know, he's, uh, the first couple of pods, everyone's going to want to hear what he has to say. And he's very uh, articulate, well-spoken man. So he's going to probably frame a pretty good case of why he was wrongfully accused. No, no, he's not doing any of that, though. It's all just about culture. Oh. Like, his first one was it's called Exile. It's funny. Enough, oh. But it was about, like... He's not going to address it at all? No. Nope. He wow. didn't even say, I'm Gian Gomeshi. He just starts talking. And he talks about the Well, idea he wanted of, people to keep listening. Yeah, globalization. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he, and, <laughs> but I'll give, it a, I'll give it a shot. I mean, but in the like, eyes of the law, he is an uh, innocent man, right? Or at least yeah. he's not guilty in the eyes of the law. Do you think people will give it a chance? Probably not a lot of female listenership. Hopefully it's a sports show or something. <laughs> <laughs> so but I did something kind of immoral on the, the weekend. Amoral? Kind of immoral. Immoral. The, one, the bad one. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what's amoral? Is that, uh, it's it's like it's kind of ambiguous. It's oh, like, okay. Yeah. Maybe it is amoral then. But uh, yeah, you, did you talk about the thing at all? Yeah, I talked about the party. Yeah. So how Julian got kicked out of the club? Yeah. Okay, so people know. Julian's kind of like, he's like... If we were to have a fourth unofficial member to the pod, it would be the night. I call him Ju- the MVP of the Champagne Boys group. I think he is. Yeah. I, I, I was just going to say, I think Julian's actually replacing the nut as the new like funny guy to yeah. talk about on the pod. So he he gets kicked out for I, I didn't even know, but I, I I tried to confront a bouncer, but my memory's a little hazy, <laughs> <laughs> and my voice is horrible too right now. I just I, this is my first time speaking this morning, but um. I think he, the bouncer said he tried taking his pants off. <laughs> yeah. I, I, just, uh, I think he was just dancing too aggressively. He no, I think one pants. of his moves was taking off his pants or like mimicking it. Uh, <laughs> he is a good physical that's, comedian. That's what I heard. But then there was this, everyone was just gone, like smoked out of there. And I was just left with uh, a friend who wasn't originally at the party. Uh, I don't know if I can say his name, so I won't. But, uh, yeah, he, he was at another event and then met up with us later. So it was just me, this guy, and my wife. And then one would assume, since we had uh, 
this huge loft to ourselves at the top of the Thompson. Like it's uh, the best room in the Thompson. It's this baller yeah. suite, yeah, it's a penthouse suite. suite. Yeah. So I go back there. No one's there, of course. And then the guy who I brought up there, I'll just say his name. His name's <laughs> He was blown away. He's like, this is the most incredible room I've ever, like it had a pool table. He's walking around. And you know how when you're drunk, you're kind of like a little bit of a liar? Yeah. So, and he was, <laughs> he was like, I am. Like he was pumping it up so much. He's like, oh yeah, this is, so this is your room. And I'm like, well, it's not untrue. So I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Because he wasn't like, yo, you paid for this room. Like, he was just like, oh, you're staying here. And I said, yeah. And he's like, oh, my God. He's looking, he's looking around. He's like blown away. He's like, man, I have to sleep here tonight. Are you guys sleeping here tonight? And I'm like, yeah, I might. Might not. I'm like, take it or leave it. Like, I'm playing it like I'm a cool guy. <laughs> but I know, like, uh, the nut told us we could not sleep there that night. But I'm like, yeah, maybe not. I'm like, babe, you want to stay? I'm like, yeah, I, th I think we're going to uh, bail, you know. I, I want to wake up my own bed. He's like, really? It's like, oh man. It's like, okay, we'll we'll go down and we'll get some drinks. We'll come back up and then we'll discuss it. And I was like, uh, uh, okay, let's go down. We go down the elevator and uh, we decide to forego the lobby bar. And we're like, oh, we're just we're just going home. We gotta go home. God's like, you're going home. I'm paying for your Uber. So we're like, no, no, no. He orders up the Uber, gets it, and then he's like, is it cool if I stay in the room? <laughs> and he's just like ordered up the booth uber and i know it's going to be over a hundred dollar uber it's like surge pricing and all that i'm like yeah man no problem so i, fl I flick him the key <laughs> and then as i flick him the key pulls out a hundred dollar bill and stuffs it in this part of my uh my uh pocket <laughs> so now i've just made like 250 bucks <laughs> i'm like uh-oh i'm like it'll probably just work out fine so he's paying for the Uber, which is going to be over 100 and then he gives you a $100 bill. Just as a yeah. thank you. And you tell him he can go stay in the lot <laughs> yeah. that the and, nut said nobody could stay and in. And he doesn't know the nut and his girlfriend are sleeping in the bed. <laughs> we didn't go to that part yet. <laughs> it's a big suite, man. Yeah. So I'm like, maybe he'll just end up sleeping on the couch, right? So as I'm taking, I, I kind of felt. For context, it's like not around very often. This is like the first time we've seen the guy. No, that's the main reason I lied. Yeah. I'm like, he's never going to find out. <laughs> So obviously I got him way over my head and then I get these texts. He's like, they're not letting me up in the lobby. I'm like, uh Oh, and then I'm like, I kind of just go back to sleep. <laughs> I'm like, and then I'll act like, Oh, I didn't get that text or something. Like, you know, as a normal sober person, I wouldn't do this, but your drunk mind just wants like, like yeah, to take the away. cash and get away with it. scot free and everything will work out in the morning. You could just say you were so drunk. So then ended up getting up there somehow. And walking in on the nut and his girlfriend while they were sleeping, the nut apparently was so drunk that he had no recollection. He just thought it was one of the champagne boys who walked in. I think slept on the couch, woke up, and and left before it before anything really came to him. Oh wow! So I got away with it. Obviously, I'm feeling really guilty. Did message him. He's like, "Yo, that was a hundred twenty-seven dollar Uber." And I'm like, "I'll give you the money right away. I'll send it to you, man." He's like, "No, no. I'm just saying. Like, whoa, the surge pricing's ridiculous." So that was kind of my my Gion moment. <laughs> that's it. That's all. That's our episode. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, the Michael Much Podcast. You can find. I was going to say produced by Max Kerman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can find us online at Twitter, on Twitter and Instagram, Mike on Much. Leave a comment and rating 
uh, on iTunes. It really helps the show grow. Thank you very much to Jenna Gregory at jennasdoodles.com for providing the artwork. The Michael Munch Podcast is produced by Max Kerman. Thanks, as always, to Shane Cunningham, our pop culture aficionado. See you next week if we don't die on the weekend. Nailed it. <laughs>